Last Sunday morning, taking the first verse of the reading we had from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, I tried to preach a sermon on how all of us must journey through what is very much like a wilderness of sin in the stages of our life's spiritual growth and discipleship. We've been walking that kind of path, I believe, over the last month with the ancient Israelites in our Old Testament readings, following Moses out of Egypt and through the desert in the Exodus. And if we can open our minds and start to see that story again through our own experiences, it can become just as this story became for the earliest church fathers and mothers. They read the Exodus story and began to see it as a metaphor for their own journey with Christ. And so it can be for all of us in the church today. For we are all looking for that same freedom and for that spiritual promised land where we live a deeper, more meaningful life as God intended for all of us in creation. And if we are truly moving through the stages of spiritual life and growth and climbing that same ladder where Jacob saw angels ascending and descending between heaven and the earth, then the book of Exodus this morning is moving us up the first rung in our ascent of that ladder. Exodus chapter 20 presents you and me with what is the very foundation and starting point of God's plan for his people and for his kingdom. This morning we are hearing again the first set of laws presented to Moses when he journeyed up to the top of Mount Sinai, the great Decalogue, or as we all know it best, as the Ten Commandments. When I was growing up in elementary school in Kentucky, I can still remember seeing a framed copy of the Ten Commandments hanging in the hallway that led to the principal's office in my public elementary school. It was the 1980s, and though it may not have been that way in larger urban cities and suburbs back then, in rural Appalachian Kentucky where I grew up, I'd wager to bet that nearly every public school had the Ten Commandments hanging somewhere. Of course, when I first saw them in elementary school, I'm not sure I really understood what the Ten Commandments were really all about, but I definitely knew that you could find them hanging near the principal's office, and therefore they must have something to do with the very location where school rules were set and strictly enforced. And though I don't remember ever being sent to the principal's office as a child, at least not in first or second grade anyway, all those thou shall nots certainly fit well with what we kids generally heard coming out of the mouth of Mr. Mitchell our elementary school principal. And if you had to be reminded by the principal of a particular thou shalt not in the school, well, you knew you were definitely in some serious hot water. And I guess that's probably still what we all tend to think of today the most when we revisit the Decalogue, either in the Bible or in the Book of Common Prayer. For in the Episcopal Church, the one time when we ever reread the Ten Commandments together during a Sunday worship service is during the season of Lent, when those thou shalt nots seem to connect quite well with all those tough Lenten disciplines we're engaging in. But as restricting as the Hebrew Decalogue seems to be, the real intention of those commandments was never to only be punitive. Just as we've been discussing for the past few weeks, 
The law of God presented to Moses was always meant first and foremost to be affirming for the Israelite people, giving them a much needed directive for how to stay on the right path through that wilderness of sin they were journeying through. It was the next stage they had come to, the new starting point for climbing the steps upward from the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, back towards the full reconciliation with God, our Creator. For just as we always need good directions for how to complete an important task or project set before us, whether it's baking a cake or building a house or finishing a degree or a license, the Ten Commandments were meant from the beginning to be the how-to guide used by God's people to begin our full restoration with God. As Christians, I think to really wrap our minds and hearts around this and start getting beyond the restrictive tone of those thou shalt nots in the Decalogue, it's probably best to go back to Jesus and to understand how Jesus himself saw the law of Moses in the Torah. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is very quick to say in chapter 5, right at the beginning of his famous Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. In so many ways, that powerful sermon which Jesus delivers on top of a mountain in Galilee is meant by the writer of Matthew's gospel to be nothing less than a direct connection to that law that was first delivered to Moses on the mountain he ascended all those many years before. And later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will indeed fulfill that law of Moses. First, by summarizing all of Moses' many thou shalt nots into two powerful and affirming great commandments. God says in Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. And so those become the words of the new Moses who is Jesus of Nazareth. So if all the laws and the prophets are broken down by Jesus into these two great commandments, love of God and love of neighbor, we can certainly now take Jesus' summary and begin to see the Decalogue in a more clear and concise way. We begin with loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. To put it even more simply, that means we must love God first and place God above everything else in our lives. In the Decalogue, this is laid out in the first four commandments, beginning with commandment number one, requiring God's people to have no other gods before God. And I'm sure this probably sounds easy to all of us today, but let us not forget that this doesn't just include some other lesser god or goddess from the distant past, but it requires that we make sure that nothing in our lives becomes like a God over and against our relationship and dedication to God, our creator. And just to help us break that down, commandment number two takes it one step further, saying that we may not allow any physical or material thing to become an idol or a representation of God in our life. Now, I'm sure most of you know that back in the time of the Reformation, Protestants and Catholics argued 
over this commandment in regards to the creation of statues and paintings that made an image of God in the form of what is called an icon. Think of the statue you passed walking in of dear St. Francis outside the front doors of the church or that beautiful painting of Jesus the Good Shepherd over our our prayer candles at the entrance. But this morning, I want you to get your mind out of the Middle Ages. Forget about statues and paintings of religious saints. And let's start talking about what has really, I believe, become the idol that we cling to today from the moment we wake up in the morning to the very moment we go to bed at night. That one physical thing we can never go anywhere without always keeping in reach. That one smooth bit of technology that we might even be tempted to look at during a particularly long service on a Sunday morning in the church. Yes, forget about icons and statues, and let's talk about the modern idolatry of our smartphones. And I just showed you, I'm equally guilty. But that's all I'm going to say about commandment number two. Just go back and read it one more time, and that's all we need to say. And in the fourth, the third and fourth commandment, we have two more requirements for putting God first in our life and loving God with our heart, soul, and mind. Commandment number three tells us to not speak of God in a disrespectful way because God is God and God certainly should have the same appreciation and the respect that we would show for those in our own lives like our mothers, our fathers, our grandparents, and our spouse. And in commandment number four, we are to remember the Lord's day and to keep the Lord's day holy. Of course, you may think this is because God needs our worship, but God doesn't need anything. He's God. We are called to keep the Lord's Day holy in our own lives because we ourselves need that time to be with God for the good of our own health and our own inner being and souls. And what day is the Sabbath day for Christians? It's Sunday. Now, In our overburdened, busy lives, I know that for most Christians, just like everyone else, Sunday has become one more day in our weekend that we might use to get a child's birthday party out of the way or make it to a soccer game or just get out on the golf course one more time before we have to go back to work. But brothers and sisters, for those of us who are really trying to stay on that path towards some real spiritual health and growth and towards a deeper relationship with our God and Jesus Christ, we have to live out this commandment and set aside one day, just one day, for our faith. Even during a worldwide pandemic, it's still an important directive for the good of our inner heart and our inner soul. And that is how the Decalogue shows us we can love God fully with our heart, soul, and mind. So now, how do we observe God's second great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, for that, we can turn to the second portion of the Ten Commandments. First, in Commandment 5, we must honor those who have formed us and brought us into life and into community. In the Fifth Commandment, that is always referred to as father and mother. But we must always be ready to expand that 
to everyone who has taken on that particular role and made us who we are. And then commandments 6 through 10, we find the foundation of living within community, not only a community with family, but with all of our neighbors around us. Do not murder. That is meant to cover every way of killing another person outside of defending oneself against murder by another. Do not commit adultery. For adultery not only can destroy a family, but it, as we know, can damage an entire community. Do not steal. For theft violates the dignity of a neighbor just as much as it robs from their property. Do not lie against anyone. And finally, do not allow yourself to desire and lust after something that belongs to another person, whether it's the neighbor's house or a neighbor's spouse or a neighbor's fancy new car or some other personal item. Why? Because to desire something or to lust after it opens the door for everything else the commandments just told us not to do to our neighbor. If we can hold to these six commandments, then we have everything we need to make it into Jesus' second great commandment of loving our neighbors, which of course means that our neighbors are everyone who we come in contact with. And that, brothers and sisters, is the full Decalogue, Ten Commandments, loving God first above everything else and loving our neighbor, all of humanity as we love our very selves and our families. Upon these two great commandments, presented first to God's people in that Decalogue given to Moses during the exodus from Egypt, God's people have the foundation upon which all our moral and ethical lives can be based as children of God and as disciples of Jesus Christ. And I ask you, what would this world be like today with all its fear and violence and division if we really followed these simple rules in our lives. And that's why I fully believe it's so important that we still remember and revisit this great Decalogue as people of faith today. For even if we want to show our respect, as we should, for the different religions and cultures of our neighbors and no longer hang those commandments on the walls of public schools or post them outside of courthouses, we as Christians can still keep them close to us and make sure we know and follow them as we continue our journey to press onward, as St. Paul says, in our faith in this struggling world. Friends, as we walk together with Christ through what will always be a wilderness of sin and temptation, let us as God's people cling to this roadmap God first gave to us in the Ten Commandments. Think of that Decalogue not as restriction, but as the rungs in that ladder of ascent toward true freedom and fullness of life that will not only be lived right now, but will be lived out for eternity. That's the hope and the good news it brings to all of us always. Thanks be to God.